0: This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by Invarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IVPress and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Hey y'all, it's a I am so excited for us to continue to dive into the State of the Black Church series. And so uh, these episodes will actually not, you. They, some of these episodes may contain um, two interviews, right, um, put together, because there was just so many aspects um, of some of our conversations that we, we figured, we you know, we need to bring another expert in to talk about this dimension. And what about this esper- expert for this aspect of a particular topic that we're talking about with the state of the Black church. And so uh, this is one such episode, uh, the state of the Black church, uh, the data episode, or where the numbers reside. Uh, We are joined by Dr. Corey Little Edwards, and uh, later we will be joined by Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker, CEO uh, and founder of Black Millennial Cafe. So let me start off with Dr. Corey Little-Edwards, uh, just to tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Corey Little-Edwards is Associate Professor of Sociology at The Ohio State University. She is a leading scholar of race and religion in the United States, past president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, an international interdisciplinary association, and editor-in-chief for the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, an international multidisciplinary academic journal. She has written several books and articles on multiracial religious organizations. These include The Elusive Dream, The Power of Race in Interracial Churches, and Against All Odds, The Struggle for Racial Integration in Religious Organizations. Dr. Little Edwards' most recent book, Smart Suits, Tattered Boots, Black Ministers Mobilizing the Black Church in the 21st Century, examines Black religious leaders' engagement in the 2000-2012, I'm sorry, a 2012 election to understand their civic and political participation and mobilization in today's America. Little Edwards is principal investigator of a national study of multiracial church pastors called the Religious Leadership and Diversity Project, the most in-depth, comprehensive project ever conducted on leaders of multiracial congregations. Finally, Little Edwards is the co-host of the Elusive Dream podcast. Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Corey Little Edwards and myself and Christina. Hey y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKeminy. And I'm Christina. This table is built by black women and for black women. So welcome to the table, see. How you doing,
1: girl? I am doing good today. I really am. You know, it's 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 day by day out here, you know. So it's uh yes. I, you know, I'm I'm over a few things. I'm over I'm over COVID. COVID's not over us. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> you know, so I'm a little, I'm tired. I'm definitely tired, but it has been a good day. I think. Mean- I've been counting and naming my blessings. How about you? How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited about um, the things that we got popping at the table and the people we have at the table. How about listen, <laughs> I must say that I am personally impressed with this series. Listen, indeed, we're coming up. We're coming up. Listen, and and you know, and you know that really is our standard. We're like, do we like it? <laughs> then that's what we're going to do. <laughs> So, and this is, this, will, this is a really exciting day. You know, I, you know, I love, I love social science. I, I love yes. research and I have a deep respect for, for researchers because they help us practitioners make it happen responsibly, not just make it up stuff. Yes. You know? um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about who we have at the table today. Yes. Well, y'all. Okay. So it's the State of the Black Church series. We get so excited we forget to tell y'all
0: where we at. Okay. So it's a doctor series still. And we are digging into the data. Okay. So we have researchers at the table. Not just any old body, y'all. We have Dr. Corey Little Edwards at the table with us. Welcome to the table, Dr. Edwards. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to be at the table with y'all. Yes. It's
2: nothing like sitting around a table with some Black sisters. Listen. I talk about the world and solving problems. and I love it. I love it. So I'm yes. so delighted right. to be present with y'all.
0: Yes, and we are so happy to have you. And just in case our sisters at the table do not know who you are, let me tell them a little something about you. All right. Dr. Corey <laughs> Little Edwards is Associate Professor of Sociology at the Ohio State University. She is a leading scholar of race and religion in the United States, past president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, an international interdisciplinary association, and incoming editor-in-chief for the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Current editor,
2: well, that's my bad.
0: Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, what? January. <laughs> oh, you started. Okay, that's all right. You started. Hallelujah. Well, she, uh, she is, is right. okay. How about that? She is the editor in chief for the journal for the scientific <laughs> study of religion. She has written several books and articles on multiracial religious organizations. Her most um, her most recent book, Smart Suits. Tattered Boots, Black Ministers Mobilizing the Black Church in the 21st Century, uh, co-author out of NYU, New York University Press. It examines Black religious leaders' engagement in the 2012 election to understand their civic and political participation and mobilization in today's America. Finally, Little Edwards is the co-host of the Elusive Dream podcast. Welcome to the table, Dr. Edwards. Thank you, thank you, thank you y'all, for having me. this be this be truth table be live, okay?
1: So Dr. Edward was correcting the bio as I was reading it. That's how we do it <laughs> Okay. And listen, and listen, and that's gonna stay in there. Okay. <laughs> I,
2: mean, I should have told y'all. Keep
1: in. <laughs> oh no. I, I, I like that. We we're, we're gonna keep the real time. And and, and and let and let the and let the women at the table know that we can clarify. Things about our own bio real time. You know what? Isn't that, receive the that.
2: <laughs> you just spoke a word in there?
1: Practice, I right? On the Practice, Practice it. Letting Practice letting people know who you are. Practice, yes. I tell you.
2: We're, yes. we're
1: quick, folks are quick to forget. So, so mm-hmm. go ahead and and, and interrupt uh, kindly, yes. but clar- clarify about yourself because you're you're the keeper of your own your own brand identity or whatever you got going on. Yes. So, thank thank you for showing us sure. that. Yes. <laughs> thank yes. you for showing us that. Well, so, i, I, I I'm I, I'm I'm so excited to have you here and to really get into this this book this particular project mm-hmm. um, but i i know your work uh previous to this particular project yeah
2: yeah
1: and and i want i want the uh the listeners to get a sense of why you study what you study mm-hmm. social science having something to say about the church not just religion mm-hmm. broadly but specifically the christian church and i think your focus is primarily in the states and so tell mm-hmm. tell us why this is your path your topic mm-hmm. why you've had this commitment
2: yeah, yeah. So so just to go back even a little bit before that, my in my previous life, I used to be an engineer. And I worked as an engineer for several years, actually. And then I just felt the Lord really beginning to put some things on my heart as it relates to the church. Now, I had no idea what I was doing. I was a civil engineer. I had Construction boots on. I had a hard hat. I had my I had my vest on. I was out there in the construction oh, field, y'all. So I want you to visualize that. Yeah. The Lord come and said to me, McCory, I have something else for you. And it took me a minute, y'all. It took me a minute to deal with that because I was comfortable. I, I, what was, I feel. I had a, i had a good job. You know what I'm saying? Talking Listen, about going back to what you I'm sorry, what you say
1: <laughs> Listen, the, the Lord rarely takes us to comfort. I just want to yes. be real about that.
2: Yes, ain't that the Hello? truth, right? <laughs> and he's like, no, that's not what you're gonna stay. That's not where you're gonna stay. So long and short is I ended up following that call and uh, really wanted to build knowledge for the body of Christ as it relates to race mm-hmm. and racial inequality. Wow, not just in society more broadly because I fundamentally believe that the body of Christ and the gospel in particular is the key to a society that is just and free mm-hmm. not only just the body of Christ but society that Jesus came to set us free that we are to be engaging in justice that is what we are called to do and so and so the gospel mm-hmm. is the key to that and we and my desire and my passion really, is to build knowledge for the body of Christ so that we can understand ourselves better yeah. and so that we can live out the gospel better. Mm. Because if we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand why we do what we do and how we're going to get to where we're going to go, mm. then we're not going to do that well. Right. And knowledge is key to that. Mm. Knowledge is key to that, mm. right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Ooh. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Just, yeah. Yeah, just that, your testimony of just the trajectory that God put you on. So it sounds to me like you went from tattered boots to smart boots. <laughs> that I love it. Y'all yeah, good. Oh, I love it. Yes. You know, when we talk about the state of Black, uh, we talk about the Black church, we can get precious about it. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah. So I'm wondering Ooh. if you can talk to our Sisters at the Table, talk, can you give them mm-hmm. your own, your credentials? <laughs> like, can you t- talk to your own, talk to us about your own relationship to the Black church? And oh, then yeah. talk to us about mm-hmm. this notion um, or this conclusion, present day notion, I would say among my generation, millennials, I'd say Z, mm-hmm. you know, that saying the Black church is asleep on the post, you know? So can you mm-hmm. talk to us about your own relationship mm-hmm. to the Black church and then talk yeah. to us about that assertion that people are, are are feeling like the black church is at the at sleep uh, asleep at the wheel if you will of justice mm. can you talk to us about both of those? Uh, uh, yeah,
2: absolutely. Aspects. Absolutely. So I, I was uh, raised in largely in the black church, and uh, so I started out my, my going to a more con- to a more um, liturgical kind of black Baptist church. But most of my growing up was in a Baptist church. So you know it was Baptist, but uh, you know you had you had a little bit of speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. and then you had a little bit of running up and down the yeah. aisle. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. long services, excellent, really great, great pastor. A great pastor. Uh, and so I grew up in the black church mm-hmm. and that is, that is where my, my roots are. That is where my, my soul mm-hmm. feels ooh, connected. I feel at home in that space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I've continued after that, after college, I went to both multiracial churches and the black church. Mm-hmm. So I've been in both mm-hmm. and, um, I feel a real, I have a real sense of, I have a deep conviction. I have a deep conviction that the, that the black church is, has the spiritual DNA and the organizational DNA for change in minimally in this country. Right. Minimally. Because we have been doing this for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. But to your point about where we are today, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, as I talk about in the book, um, we we tend we still are connected and embedded in a framework of the civil rights movement. And let me listen, yes. listen, listen. The civil rights movement we, that was a miraculous movement. Yes. that was a God sent yes, movement. And let me tell you something. It's, when it gets out to the sort of um, broader society, they like to strip God and the spirit and the work of the spirit away from it. And it's just this. You know, uh, we don't want to talk about that. But this was this was really about a God-centered, Christ-centered movement. Yes. Uh, and so I don't want to take anything away from that. But really, in some ways, because of the impact of the civil rights movement and because of the um changes that occurred as a result of the civil rights movement in this country, that the US today is not what it was in nineteen in the nineteen fifties and the sixties. And race works In different ways. It continues to suppress and oppress Mm -hmm. black people Mm -hmm. in America in most profound ways. White supremacy still is at work, but it works in different ways. And and so we and so the black church, I wouldn't say is asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I would argue what I argue is that the black church has to has to pivot. Mm. We got to pivot Mm. from the mid 20th century to the 21st century. We got to pivot from from those smart suits Mm. and perhaps identity politics that has threaded some of that. And we need to pivot to what's going on in America today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that takes a reimagination of what it is to be the Black Church. It has a reimagination of who can lead the Black Black Church. It is a reimagination of what credentials are expected to move us forward yeah. as a Black Church. Uh, but I would I would say that no, we are not asleep mm-hmm. at the wheel, uh, and I and so I, I'm very grateful. Yeah. I'm very grateful for the Black Church. I I love the Black Church. I'm very grateful for the leaders in the Black Church. And yet, and yet, there are some there are some things that that do need to change. Sure,
0: sure.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. And I, you know, and what is what will be I think helpful for for everybody as we as we grow and as we develop mm-hmm. is um, an expression mm-hmm. of both our emotional and spiritual maturity is that we can hold different things mm-hmm. in each hand. Deep mm-hmm. gratitude and 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 a hopeful critique. and <laughs> the other hand, like right. you can, we can we can hold these things together, yes. and it is not a betrayal. As a matter of fact, it's an expression of love. And so, mm. um, thank thank you so much for um sharing sharing that wisdom with us. So I want to get into the design of yeah. this study, right? So a lot of people may not be um, familiar when they think about. Um, a research study, my guess is that the average person is thinking about, um, you know, kind of a, 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 a kind of a scale. They're mm-hmm. thinking of some type of questionnaire. They may be thinking about something in a lab. Right. But, um, as, as a fan of qualitative research, which my dissertation was use qualitative research, but it is tedious. Okay. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the real deal. Okay. And so I want you to help, help us to get some insight into, The methodology and design of this study, because I think it's it's critical for us to understand that so that we we can we can learn. But also it parallels the the necessary relationships to understand the black church. Yes. The the intimacy and connectedness of qualitative research. So can you help us to understand that?
2: Yes, yes. So what, what we did, and so I actually worked with, um, at the time, was my graduate student, but now she's a co-author of the book. She's an assistant professor. So grateful for that at Muskegon University. Yay! Um, so we, so the the aim of the study was to get a sense of what Black religious leaders were, were doing as it relates to mobilization. And I was, and I was sparked by what I felt in the pews of a Black church myself, because yeah. I was a member of a Black church, mm-hmm. of a sense of being mobilized to vote, right? And uh, in a way that felt felt, and I and I and I have to say this: we 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 sometimes underestimate, and I believe this is important for for women scholars and Black women scholars in particular, is paying attention to our gut and our emotions. We a lot of the uh, frameworks, the paradigms, like to just be intellectual in the head and not actually yes. paying attention. And so I'm in the I'm out there feeling something different, and we and I decide, you know, look, I need to see what's going on. And so I the study has uh, we did we looked at interviews with black religious leaders and civic leaders who wanted to work with black religious leaders on mobilization and ended up interviewing well over fifty people in the state. Now, this is the thing, it's bounded in a particular state, it's bounded in Ohio, and the reason why I bounded it in Ohio is because I wanted to get a sense of how does this network work yeah. how are they connected if it gets a little bit too far geographically then it's a little bit more difficult to sort of make sense of that and so I bounded it by the state and we also looked at leaders who were active actively involved that were either one considered to be high status leaders or number two, considered to be leaders who were actively engaged. So it really privileges leaders who are really would be the ones who would be at the center. And I wanted to get to those leaders because those are the ones who would make mobilization happen. Mm. And so, study includes in-depth interviews with these pastors, largely these pastors, as well as civic leaders. Uh, And we're looking at pastors who are part of Kojic, who are part of AME, who are part of National Baptist, who are part of non-Black denominations as well, but Black pastors Mm -hmm. that are part of largely Black churches, regardless of their particular religious affiliation. Mm Uh, And so we also then went out and observed the kind of work that they were doing, right? Just went to where mobilization was happening and paid attention and sat and hung out and observed that work as well. So it included both observation of what they were doing and also conversations uh, with what the Black religious leaders were doing and the civic leaders who
0: wanted to work with them. Wow. Wow. So, and, how, and can you talk to us about how long that took? Because I'm thinking about the time. <laughs> like, how long? <laughs> like, how you, you know, like, my goodness. Oh, my and then you got to put it all together. Like, how long <laughs> did it take you to put the data together and then to write it? I'm sorry. That's just, I'm just curious. I'm sorry. Thanks. Well, let's just say it took a minute. But what I was <laughs> saying. <laughs>
2: It takes a minute but you know what uh, you know uh, just like you know Christina was saying you know when you're doing qualitative work you're out there really spending a lot of time getting those interviews setting up those interviews having these conversations with people i was out there driving across the state i would hop in my car and i would drive two and three hours across the state wow. to go and observe different types of events and then i'd drive right back home so you know i was out and about i was in the streets uh you know getting to know what was going on but i will say this and i, th- I think this is really important because I also have other work where I study pastors. So over the past 10 years or so, my research is focused on uh, pastors, pastors of multiracial churches and pastors of the Black church. And I will say this, I'm very grateful for the time and the energy they gave me to share their stories with me. So I want to say that this was sacred time for me because, you know, as we talk about what, what black religious leaders in the black church more broadly can begin to do to pivot to the 21st century, to mobilize toward issues of justice, uh, we I want to also hold uh, their souls a bit too, mm-hmm. to recognize okay. that this is not easy work. Oh, no. It's not easy to manage being a pastor of a church, while also wanting to lead your people through and out of oppression, and so I, I want to maintain that and i and I am very grateful for the time that they gave me and the stories that they were willing to share with me that that is that is precious
0: yeah, yeah that 's beautiful, and I think it's so important right to be able to honor you know mm-hmm. the work that they do. Um, and yeah. the, their humanity, right. <laughs> they're embodied yeah. souls. They, they take hits, you know, they do a lot. There are a lot of great pastors out there that are doing the best that they can. And yeah. they they got some heavy burdens. Um, yeah. always did, but definitely now right, right in a pandemic as well. And so, yeah. so yeah, I think that yeah. was, thank you so much for uh, lifting that up and saying that, well, let yeah. me take a quick commercial break. And we will be right back at the table with Dr. Corey Little-Edwards. So don't go nowhere, y'all. Stay right here.
1: Em, <laughs> do you know what's really important for the success of Black Books
3: Oh, I sure do. That pre order action.
1: That's we right. We want to make
3: sure everybody knows that if you want to support Black publishers, Black books, Black authors, y'all come on out here
1: and pre mm-hmm. order this book.
0: Yes, y'all. Pre order Truth Table Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation at truestable.com or wherever books are sold. Beyond Racial Division by George Yancey offers an approach to racial relations, one that recognizes how efforts at colorblindness ignore racial realities in our history of injustice. History and societal complexities mean that different participants may have different kinds of responsibility, but all are involved in seeking the common good for all to thrive. Avoiding unilateral decisions that close off dialogue, Yancey casts a vision for moving beyond racial alienation toward a lifestyle and movement of collaborative conversation and mutuality. Truth Table listeners can save 30% off of Beyond Racial Division when they order at ivpress.com using promo code TRUTH22. That's promo code TRUTH22. 22 at IVpress.com to get 30% off of Beyond Racial Division. Okay, and we are back at the table with Dr. Corey Little Edwards talking about smart suits. Tattered boots. All right, y'all. You know, it's a black church book when it when it rhymes. OK, so, okay. <laughs> it's got a lot of It's got a lot of Dr. Edwards, actually, you know, in the book, mm-hmm. I found this um, interesting um, and fascinating. You were talking about how. Um, answering the question about you know the black church's mobilization um mm-hmm. in uh you know during this this time period um, that we're in in light of black lives matter and and whatnot mm-hmm. and I thought it was interesting not surprising but interesting uh that some of the i 'll just say barriers for lack of a better term of like what might be impeding uh maybe even a much more robot robust you know um um response against systemic on racism, we you know we have electoral politics on lock as far as voting right. We we can we could mobilize folks to vote, and so um, <laughs> uh, you know we we can do that. We we've done that for years, yeah, right? Yeah. We could you know we got to go. We can do it. Um, but I thought it was interesting how you uh, highlighted or lifted up the fact that I, I don't the let's say the money base. I'll just say the money base, for lack of a better term, has shifted a bit, right? And so they're not as connected to NAACP. Um, uh, um, SCLC, uh, and now it's shifted to more so white, uh, organizations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause we know money talks and I know that that, that seems to me from what I could tell from the book, yeah. that seems to be a factor and what is yeah,
1: much, much much pay much say yeah. right so yeah help yeah. us to get get a sense of that
2: that, that a little bit. yeah well i have to admit i was a little bit i know you thought it was interesting and not surprising yeah. i i was i was a little bit i was actually a little surprised mm-hmm. um Because, you know, it wasn't as if they weren't connected to the NAACP Mm -hmm. or the SCLC. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Ohio, where this has taken place, is we have non and SCLC and NAACP and Urban League. You know, we have all the Black-centered civic organizations that they can participate in and belong to. But... That there was this greater connection, if there was a connection, with the FBCOs and working with F- FBCOs, mm-hmm. that is faith-based community organizations. Now, not everybody was doing that, right? Because mm-hmm. some of them were like, once you get involved, they were like, listen, this is really very white-centered. You're not really going to be focusing on issues that are related to the Black yeah. church. But um there was this real shift toward that. And a big part of that is that FBCOs have really taken up a larger proportion of the mobilization field. When I say that, I just mean organizations that are mobilizing or organizing more broadly in society. They're taking up a greater and greater space of that. And they're connected to foundations that are given grants and money, right? And so they have this capacity Um, that they're able to use and Black, some Black religious leaders, Mm -hmm. some Black religious leaders found that attractive uh, to work with them on certain kinds of issues. And so, you know, as soon as you do that, you know, as as I mentioned, You know, black churches and black leaders only have but so many resources. It's not it's not a limited amount of resources. So once you begin to diverge your resources to one in one direction, or divest from resources in one particular space, and you move and invest it in another space, you can't. That's that's going to lead to some level a deficit in one area. So yeah, that's one thing that really Mm. stood out. And. has really sort of important implications mm. as we think about how is it that the Black church is going to mobilize, right? If you're going to have the voices and the impact of white society more broadly, not to say, you know, their their ideas aren't valuable or not to say that FBCO or, um, FBCOs don't have legitimate ideas, but rather they are largely white-controlled and white-led, Um And that's something that you have to navigate because whiteness is a thing. And just because it's in liberal spaces doesn't mean that it it disappears. And so having to navigate that, those resources and those ties and figuring out what you're going to do to mobilize is present Mm -hmm. and impacts what black religious leaders can and will be able to
1: do. Yeah.
0: Makes sense.
1: No, that's, that is super helpful. As as you were talking, uh, Dr. Evers, what I kept hearing in my head was, um, Philanthropic control, like the ways in which, um, you know, white dominant organizations, um, conservative or liberal, yeah. um, are able to um, really subvert justice with a focus on charity, mm. um, and, and you know, almost like kind yeah. of a bait and switch, or <laughs> right, it, yeah. and also it's not always malicious, but I, I, I think that uh, that philanthropic control, yeah, um, yeah, is is just really really common. I know, at least certainly in, in my experience, uh, and where I've uh, been able to journey through over the last decade plus just to see that in action. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, so I'm I'm thinking about what are the ways that a congregant and even the ones that Kimmy described, like a, you know, a, a person who feels like, you know, why why isn't my church speaking to this? I'm frustrated. <laughs> what because I think that individuals are impacted by the communities that are around them yeah. um, and that pastors are impacted and strengthened by the churches that they're a part of, right? So um, the way that they, what their expectations of them, the way they lift up their arms, etc. cetera. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious from your research, if you could help us to kind of glean out what are the church conditions mm-hmm. that would help a pastor step into a place of mobilizing around uh, issues of justice. So what so as a regular member what can I do what can I participate in in order to to kind of increase that flame. Yeah,
2: I think that's a, that's a great question. I mean and let me say something say this. It didn't come out as much in the book but it did come out in the interviews. And mm-hmm. and, and this is another reality that uh black religious leaders are also dealing with um, churches that are made up of black middle class people. Come on. And, And we have to recognize that they are managing class aspirations of their comments as well as how do you do that and also deal with, um, justice issues that may be affecting our siblings who are of a lower class. Oh yeah. yeah. Right? Oh yeah. And so th- that there's a broader that and, and again this goes back to this th- what happened after the civil rights movement is that because of this legislation and some of the work of sociologists particularly coming out in the seventies and eighties really well even after that really showed how that opened up opportunities for for black people who were already educated and had certain kind of credentials to take advantage of those changes yeah. and then that led to an expanse of the black middle class and then the black middle class begins to exit black neighborhoods in the city moving out to the suburbs and then continue to have these class aspirations so there also has to be some work that we have to do about how invested are we in our in maintaining the benefits that come with whiteness too mm-hmm. and and then how much are we willing to put out uh put out there as well to support pastors who want to do this kind of work now there definitely are pastors who do want to do this kind of work and uh and then there are those who are less inclined as I talk about because of these connections with the political apparatus in society as well. Yeah but i believe that a big part of it is having to do our own work about what we are what we want to it's all it's the pastors but it's also people people in the pew so there are broader structural issues that um that we have to think about and take into account like who are who who are the who are black people in the united states how is class impacting us yeah. um how are we thinking about issues of you know of gender i talk about that as well we talk about generational issues. So there's a lot of diversity that has to be addressed, too, within Black, among Black people in the United States, and then how that impacts the church Mm, as well.
0: mm. Yes. Thank you for that, especially bringing up the class issues, right? This, Which has been going on. Yeah. Since what the Black Church movements, you know, you talk about with Nanny mm-hmm. and Mary Church Terrell. Come on now, this thing's have been this yeah. has been going on. That's what righteous discontent is all about. Any well, part of yeah. it, it, yeah. Ain't, it yeah. ain't all about that, but it's up in there. And so. Like, <laughs> But yeah, you know, I mean, my goodness. So I I'm think I'm so glad you brought that up because Christina was like, that's another thing we got to talk about. I was like, yeah, you're right.
1: So, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yes. Definitely. The the, the, black, the black dollar, the black dollar and the yeah. you know, just the legacy of the in the reality of the, what, you know, the black bourgeoisie or the black middle class and. Absolutely, and and maintaining interests, and certainly, um, I always talk about just the differences between just the the different black ch- black churches and the American story,
2: yeah.
1: um, as as a product of a church that I would con- I look back on and say, oh, that was definitely the black upper middle class church. They didn't call themselves that, but as I reflect on who was in the foyer, I was like, oh, yeah, and there were particular interests that. People wanted to maintain and relationships that they that they had, um, mm-hmm. and so it's just. I think it's just helpful just to name those things, not for mm-hmm. us to be shamed yeah. by it, but so that we can actually strategize towards mm-hmm. what is just. It, it, what's your question? You know, um,
0: yeah, Dr. Edwards, you know, I'm I'm curious about uh, what it what you maybe went in as you started, you know, doing this research. What were you kind of expecting? you know, to find and yeah. what surprised you. Now you did talk a little bit about, you know, uh, because of my previous question, but what what else jumped out at you that was like, okay, this surprised me. I did not expect that.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what I went in yeah.
2: expecting. To find. I just kind of wanted to know what was going on, okay. you know, what's going on here. Right. And, you know, because at the moment, you know, you have the, you have the developments of the black lives matter movement yes. is, is, is beginning to really pick up steam, and then you have this option to really mobilize the vote, right? So you have very clear options on the table uh, to address, right? We just had the the the, the unjust murder, you know, of of one, and we and then we also have what happened with this killer, right? So we are there's stuff on the table to deal with. I think what surprised me is that that didn't register. In the interviews ah. like i you know, the question that i asked was you know what are the issues that what are what are some issues that you believe need to be addressed uh for african americans or black americans and you know today and it and it it didn't register you know with Tra- hmm. it didn't even really come up what was going on with trayvon martin and hmm. George zimmerman i was i you know i'm just re- you know you doing the research you're not there to yeah Put in your ideas and say, well, whoa, 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 what about, you know, I'm just wanting to hear, mm. you know, asking an open-ended question. Mm. And that, that really struck me. Interesting. That really struck me. Mm. And I had to really sit with that. Mm. And which is why I, I really began to think about, okay, how, what are they mobilizing for and why why, and how? And what does that have to do with what they don't do mm. as well? Mm. Yeah. And so that, that impact of how they think about who they are really matters. Um, and in many ways seemed to. It just it, it didn't register. I don't I, you know, it seemed like it just really didn't come on there on something that was as critical uh, for how they think about what the black church needs to address or what kind of issues mm-hmm. are essential uh, for African-Americans. So that really that stood out to me. Mm. Mm.
1: <laughs> One of the things that um, when we think about the um, the development and emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. um, as somebody who lives, I think between the generations that uh, in some ways we're talking about, the yeah. kind of the, the, the generation of uh, who holds kind of influence and power within the black church mm-hmm. and who who was well aware of the generation that mobilized and, and enlivened, the Black Lives Matter movement. Somebody who's looking at both of those <laughs> two generations, and I'm I'm thinking about rhetoric from um, the movement. You know, like this is not your this is not your grandma's civil rights movement, right? Mm-hmm. And the the institutional elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and what I would describe as the not kissing the ringness, yeah, of the Black Lives Matter movie, but also being well aware of the etiquette and hierarchy mm-hmm. and expressions of honor in the black church. I I just, I looked at that saying like, Oh, this, this is not going to work. Like this is not, and we, and we need these things to work together. What, what what did, what, what were you hearing that gave you some insight into, uh, why those entities would not connect uh, both in terms of perception of ethics and interests and and all of, all of those pieces.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll tell you a story, uh, that, that, um, I, that I experienced, I had an opportunity to have a couple, uh, as that generation, I'm in between those generations too. Right. So I had an opportunity to have some, a couple young ladies, uh, black women, uh, from, uh, black centered, um, college campus ministry. Mm -hmm. They were leaders of college campus ministry. And I was talking to them about, you know, just what their experiences are, how, what are they dealing with and so on. And one of the things they mentioned to me, and it really stuck out to me is they said, you know, people that we're ministering to their peers basically or people a few years younger than them are feeling like you know the older generation, that is to say that civil rights movement generation, they don't understand mm-hmm. how we're feeling. they don't get that when we hear about black young black people being killed by police that that is traumatic yes. for us. Mm-hmm. that is painful for us that is that is scary for us and and when we talk to them they say, they, they go it's not Jim Crow mm-hmm. at least it's almost like but it ain't Jim Crow but we but it's not segregation but it's not how it's not the lynching of the, you know b- before the sixties and all that right and so there's this yeah. there's this disconnect about the pain and the legitimate pain and trauma mm-hmm. that uh people of a younger generation are experiencing and navigating and I think in some ways it's maybe it's because by acknowledging that pain and the yeah. systemic racism yeah. and discrimination that continues to persist, yeah. it may feel like it undermines the civil rights movement achievements. Mm. That is still mm. operating in such a way that we have such high rates of incarceration of black and Brown people that we still have high rates of, um, of, of inequality when it comes to income and when it comes to wealth, when we, conti- when we continue to see segregation in schools, racial segregation in schools, that there have been other mechanisms that people could take advantage of to divest uh, communities of color and Black communities in particular of the resources for higher education and, and just good education, quality K-12 through education, that in some ways, perhaps, Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's a feeling of we are undermining what we stood for, what we fought for, what we died for. Mm-hmm. We have to recognize the what This is why I oh, I argue in all of my work that we must stop looking at that and recognize the power of white supremacy, mm-hmm. that it's not a failure on our part. It is the slickness of white supremacy and that we cannot take our eyes off the off the off the go. Right. We can't. Right. It is a powerful thing. It will continue to reproduce itself. Yes. It will continue to find new ways of oppressing us. And so we can never stop and say,
1: oh, mm. yeah. well, and what's, Dr. Edwards, when you said that, I was just thinking about just the temptation to turn inwards instead of missing and not noticing the actual principality, the actual enemies yes. that are at work, right? Yes. To, to turn inward with, um, uh, in terms of gender dynamics and the tensions between black men and black women and the way that gets worked out in the world of social media is frightening and, yep. and a real problem It needs to stop today. Well, no. um, <laughs> and, and the way, and just cross generationally, right? The lack mm. of maybe understanding or appreciation, the turning inward um, as a other. tool mm-hmm. of white, exactly, mm-hmm. as a tool of white supremacy yeah. instead of keeping our was, eye.
0: The diaspora.
1: Di- yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, just not not being able to understand the connection between the African story and the African-American story. I mean, which yes. just seems well, like so. obviously we need to do that for solidarity. Yeah. Um, but but all of this kind of this, this pitting against or the perception mm-hmm. of pitting against that takes our eye off of the actual Enemy. Yeah. That's right. Um, that's so right. I'm so glad that you you brought up those themes.
2: Yeah. And you know, and and both, and when you talk about those the different generations as we sit in the middle, right? That both have to recognize the humanity of all of us. Yeah. That is to yeah. say, it makes sense. I get it, that if you were if you were actively engaged and in a part of the civil rights movement era or you or you as a black religious leader aim to continue that in your own way in your local mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. that it was it's tiring it's hard and that's why you acknowledge, on the one hand, I would suggest that those who are younger have to recognize that that was some hard stuff, yes. that in fact, the Jim Crow era was painful, that we have to acknowledge that, yes, what you did, we thank you. We thank you that now, yes, that we are more likely to be able to get into colleges. Yes, yes. we are able to access the, the middle class in different ways. Yes, we are able to walk down the street and go into restaurants <laughs> and, and, and walk into the front door. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Can we can we acknowledge people's humanity yes. and be Thank grateful? You. And then, yeah. but then at the same time, we have to acknowledge the humanity of the younger generation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's right.
2: And say, okay, but you're dealing with this and yeah. we want to acknowledge your humanity. We also want to acknowledge your power And we also want to acknowledge your standpoint because Mm. you have an eye and a lens through which you understand this white supremacist society that we don't have. Yes, absolutely. And and you can help us to know how to move forward with the gospel of freedom Mm. and
0: justice. Yes. That's right. You
2: uniquely have because of your standpoint and how you've navigated the world.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Dr. Edwards, you know, each one teach one and help us to love one another well. Amen. You know, yes. Well. Yes. Ooh. Give us more yes. empathy for each other. Come on now. You know what I mean? Yes, there's Amen. levels to this. Yes, there's levels <laughs> to this. But help <laughs> us to love each other and to meet each other where we're at. You know, um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. But I hope that actually this is a microcosm of that. That's what I hope. And so mm-hmm. is, I hope that we're able to model this actually on this interview. So thank yeah. you so much, Dr. Edwards, sit, mm-hmm. for sitting at the table with us. And of course, we want to thank mm-hmm. our sisters for sitting at the table with us. Dr. Edwards, where can they buy your book? Let them, Let us know. Yeah. Well,
2: it is in a variety of different places online. So you can get it at Amazon. You could get it at uh, Barnes and Noble. You can get it at Target. (laughs) There's a lot of different places. If you put
0: sportsuits, scattered boots book in, in your Google, you will be, it'll pop up. Awesome. So you can yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting at the table with us, Dr. Edwards. I am, I am delighted to have been able to sit at the table with you. <laughs> Come on now, yes. y'all. Awesome. Yes. I love it. Well, that was really such a great interview. And we just learned a whole bunch from Dr. Edwards just about um, the state of mobilization in the Black church in this present uh, civil rights movement in uh and time if you will and so, so we're so grateful for her work for her research and uh just for the knowledge uh and expertise that she shared here at this table and so we are excited and i am excited actually to introduce um, our next guest you know i sadly i was not able to be a part of this interview uh but uh dr christina Edmondson my amazing co-host is sitting at the table with Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker. So let me tell you a little bit about Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker. Birth out of uh, her doctoral research, Black Millennial Cafe, also known as BMC, started as an online source for tips in 2016 on Black millennials and faith. With an overwhelming response to a need for more data, Black Millennial Cafe soon became not only a place to gather statistical information and examine that data, but we soon, ex- they soon extended their services to help various organizations and churches alike to move from simply analyzing critical data to structuring a plan that could change Black communities, our communities. In four short years, since 2017, they've had the privilege of working with over 65 churches in the continental United States to provide unparalleled research to their leaders and congregations. Housed under the Black Millennial Collective today, BMC strive to continue to make the statistical data available to as many entities as possible, while also offering a suite of services that include polling, consulting, webinars, discipleship, and Bible study curriculum, and other literature to assist organizations. Enjoy this interview with Dr. Brianna.
1: Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker and Christina. So we are so grateful today to have Reverend brie with us. And uh, she is not a stranger to the table. We were able to highlight her work uh, a season ago. And we always find it a, just a joy and treat to see her at conferences and to learn from her. And I would love for you to, for the folks who are just being introduced to you for the first time right now, Tell us a little bit about the work you do and why you are compelled to do this unique church, unique work in service of the church.
3: Yeah, so um, I am CEO of Black Millennial Cafe, and we're a da- data and research firm. And so we kind of just stepped in to do what no one else wanted to do. Like now... It looks sexy, you know what I mean, because we have something we produced or a mm-hmm. number of things we produced. Um, but it wasn't when we started. We, you know, the reason we can be where we are is because we had no competition. There was no one else in the field, and so we got to really build mm-hmm. um, in a very unique way. Probably, uh, you don't probably don't see many things built like this at in this time period. Um, but there was no data. And then when there was data, it wasn't on black people. It wasn't on black churches. And so we were buying up uh, all these products and resources based on data that wasn't based or on us. You know, we weren't the respondents or the primary respondents. Mm-hmm. Or even, there was no equity, you know, in yeah. um, what we were um, receiving as tools and resources. And so we, you know, I got tired of being in ministry, honestly, for 10 years in my last position and trying to figure out how to make it work for black people. So I spent all this money mm. you know, on these resources. And then I'm like, OK, now this is what we have to do to make it work for black people. And I'm like, well, I could have just wrote this on my own from scratch at this point. And so that's why we did the data. And then we've become really heavy on resources so that we can help people translate data and help it to work in their Uh, lives and ministry and communities practically. And so that's how we built BlackChurchLeader.com. Like if we Mm -hmm. have this data every month, we're training you based on the data, telling you what's going on, helping you to prepare for what's coming down the road. And so, yeah, that's what we kind of do in in the smallest of nutshells.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, it's incredibly important and innovative and timely work. And so I'm so glad to, to reintroduce you to our audience again. I, you know, I think, um, you know, obviously when people don't have data, when they may be even kind of anxious about it, mm-hmm. uh, they may find themselves just kind of creating their own narratives and myths about, about about the state of the Black church or the state of whatever environment they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about the work that you do is that it offers us an opportunity to come to the table and to to see what what's really happening to yeah. to really and then from you know and data in itself doesn't tell a story we we right. knit a story together from data mm-hmm. but but tell us a little bit how you how you sell your work maybe amongst people who feel uh, i guess Apprehensive, or maybe think that the best way to go is more of an intuitive understanding of of the state of the black church, for example.
3: Yeah, I usually do a good amount of myth busting, and I want to say this I don't blame people for using anecdotal evidence because it's all we had. I mean, we were able to do this project um, on the state of the black church because. Um, we went twenty-one years uh, in a data deficit, really. And so I understand why we rely yeah. on anecdotal evidence. It's not even mm-hmm. because we always wanted to. There was no other option, you know. And this movie. is expensive work to do. Okay. I wanna remind people that this mm-hmm. is not a five hundred dollar project. It's like three hundred thousand dollar project, you know. So mm-hmm. it's not It could be $400,000 too. So it's not cheap. It's not easy. It doesn't come quickly. And I understand that. But usually I start with myth busting, you know, because there are so many things that people imagine, you know, would be true. And and it just isn't or isn't anymore. Um, Yeah. So I usually help with that. And then I talk about all the tables they have to go to and bring data. If you want a grant. You may get it without data, but you can't fulfill it without data. You know, That's if you right. want a loan, you need data. Like we honor data in every area of our lives, probably except this, you know, area. Mm-hmm. So it it used to be a hard road to toe, okay, mm-hmm. um, to try to, get <laughs> to understand it. And they'd be like, "Uh, oh, just tell us about millennials. Uh, oh, just tell us about hybrid ministry. Uh, you know, like they didn't mm-hmm. want all the other stuff." And so, you know, it has been I I could say slow, but Maybe for some entrepreneurs, it wouldn't feel slow, Um, but mm-hmm. it's still slow. It's still work. I still have people who think, you know, almost like I do the devil's work, you know? So mm-hmm. I have to tell people data um plus discernment will help to get you to your destiny. You know, it's not That's one right. or the other. It would be lazy to only use data. It would be lazy to only use experience. But the pandemic really helped because when we were shaking hands after church, yeah. we felt like we knew our community. Even we still didn't, but we felt like yeah. we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we could no longer shake hands and, and have somebody whisper a truth in our ear, tell us something that we didn't know was going on in the community, people kind of valued it a lot more. I actually thought I actually gave all my clients an out um, mm. when the family started because I didn't want them to feel like they were stuck in contracts that they couldn't afford. And I wanted to be able to exhibit the same kind of faith I would, you know, hope that they would by saying, hey, if this is not what you want to do. But everyone stayed on. And of course, it's a busy season and, you know, it's continued Mm -hmm. to be busy until it seemed like it was getting a little better, though, Christina. And then all of a sudden they were like, (laughs) you know, okay." you know, they weren't really talking about their contracts. And then another variant hit and another variant hit. And then by the time contracts were you know ready, they were like, I think we need another contract. I'm like, "I, I thought you did, too.
1: You know, (laughs) absolutely right. Yeah, you know, there's a a clip I think that just went viral of a pastor, um, just being really honest before his congregation, expressing just, just he's just tired. He's just tired, and I, I mean, my tired is tired. I hear him. I get it. And um, and then he says, he's at a moment he says, you know, we're pastoring during a pandemic, and none of us have done that before. We don't know how to do that. And so I would imagine that in humility, there would be there would be people in leadership who would say like, oh. We need all hands on deck. Let me let me let me lean in and learn um, from from what you and your organization have to share. And also, I I'll add this to um, Reverend Bree. I I love when I talk to you because you always there's always this um, there's always this thread of professional integrity oh, right. and a desire to serve others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every time I talk to you, that theme has come up, and I just Thank wanted to you. note it right now. I really appreciate it. Um, so you did mention like you know. Busting myths Mm because I know I got you know we all got our thoughts and ideas about you know about who about who's leaving the church and why do we what do we value most and who hates
3: women most yeah
1: yeah listen and unfortunately hatred is equal opportunity but anyway all all of that to say you know I would I would love to hear just a couple because I want people to you know seek you out in the professional capacity as Mm well but a couple of those myths that you feel like you kind of help people to immediately unpack or to to shift their thinking on.
3: Yeah, um one that I actually hate to bust because it just causes us to do so much more work <laughs> if I'm honest is the myth that um younger generations are more progressive um in mm. their thoughts. Oh on gender and mm-hmm. um, racism. And and this is, so part of it is across the board, right? I remember talking um, in the pandemic and right when the George Floyd, George Floyd was murdered and people were protesting. I remember we were doing um, a survey. I was working with two other companies and they were talking about racism and pretty much saying like, you know, like younger people weren't dealing with it the same. I'm like, well, why are they in middle school and high school in blackface? Sugar, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. how progressive do you think, you know, white young adults are when it comes to race? And then that's probably not true, you know, because mm-hmm. we forget that racism is almost inherited. You know what I mean? Like as much as they want to leave mm-hmm. you their money, they want to leave you their thoughts. And so we have to, yeah, yeah. You have to break away or you have to change the mind of older people. So that was one, that's general. It's not so much black church. Black church is that young Black males are more progressive um, in certain areas. And, you know, I always remember to look at um, your secular counterpart when I'm doing work. And Mm -hmm. so I looked at the numbers around um, voting with Kamala Harris as vice president. Um, I looked at what was happening years before Trump with Black men becoming more Republican um, or identifying as Republican uh, uh, Republican a lot more. And so this was mm-hmm. not the biggest shock, but it was disappointing because older Black men were more um, into supporting and believing in Black women than younger Black men were, right? Mm. Now, I could be like, oh, my goodness, what is happening? <laughs> but you also look in relationships of how young black, younger Black men treat Black women or don't treat black women because they're not even in relationship with us. That was probably mm-hmm. a hint to these statistics. And so mm-hmm. those are statistics that are so disappointing. And I'm, the, I'm just like, and y'all want me to be in relationship in this world, you know, while I'm mm-hmm. looking at the data to see <laughs> black men ain't checking for us, you know, oftentimes in dating, in marriage, in church, as their pastor, as their colleague, yeah. like, what are we good for, you know, for them? And so Oof. that was disappointing. And I know there. I know somebody's gonna listen. There are good black men. Yes, there are. Okay, I Amen. hope I raised Amen. one. You know? I hope I raised one. You know, because my baby's twenty six. But you know, I'm just saying it's hard out here for yeah, black women. And we used to believe that black women in church were our biggest, um, you know, opponents. And that was probably true at one point. Now it's younger black men.
1: Yeah. So first of all, Reverend, let, let's let's just park right there. Okay. Let's just park right there. Cause I know there are people who just listen to that, particularly our, you know, our sisters at the table, who um are feeling that. Mm-hmm. They're they're feeling what you just what you just verified. They're feeling it in their live reality. They're feeling it when they see these um these arguments on Twitter. They're feeling that when um they're you know, their 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 white friend is getting all of these, you know, all these prospects of dates, or at least it yeah. appears that way, right? Mm-hmm. And and nobody, the invisibility, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to see that heightened among Black Christian men, mm-hmm. I think is a is a particular pain. Um, yeah. and so then it's like, where, where where can Black women turn then? If you can't turn to the church, if you're a Black heterosexual woman who is who's looking for A committed relationship. Where then can you turn? And and that is honest place. Yeah, home depot
3: me before I uh, (laughs) turn to the church. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it's just real. And you know what? And then there's another side of this too because I'm never, and I don't say this in an arrogant way, right? But I'm never short on prospects, right? But I know what they want from me, Mm. or want me to become. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really willing to do that. So it's so funny because I can almost do a countdown to the conversation that will reveal whatever it is that will Mm -hmm. make them feel most uncomfortable, whether it is my schedule and my, you know, my travel Mm -hmm. schedule, my work schedule, whether it happens to be my influence in the world uh, that is difficult for them to accept or you know, my lifestyle and, you know, what my income may provide me, or, you know, I know those things that are going to come up and I can get to know a man and think, and I can almost call it down to the mm-hmm. moment of, you know, like the conversation, like, yeah, this is not going to work. Because I think, and I don't say this in Eric, I mean, I think men like me. You know what I mean? I get it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think Black men assume as a black woman who is a preacher um, and Christian, that they're going to get a certain type of black woman. And it only take about three minutes talking to me for you to know better. But I think somehow men believe that behind the scenes, I'm mm-hmm. going to be a different woman who is more palatable, who is going to be much more malleable and it will be mm. good to go. And I just, listen, I've learned, I'd rather live in this world mm. all by myself. Yeah. Than to live in this world in companionship with someone who won't let me be myself, and I think black women either deal with being invisible or being almost what I want, but it's something that feels progressive. Mm. And I tell people all the time, maybe I was made for the 1920s, and <laughs> you know, on one hand, and how men should treat women, and then maybe I'm made for like 2120 you know as far as how i want men to see women so i don't know i guess i am in the middle but it ain't feeling real balanced you know <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah and, and the and the reality is is that if we look at generations past we would think of and, and in many cases we still think of the of the, the black church as um as a living room as a social place that we mm-hmm. come to around politics around identity yeah. but also around family formation mm-hmm. and what you're just describing demonstrates kind of a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then also you're naming for us the reality of why we want to avoid some, some, some data <laughs> because it yeah. can sometimes hold up a mirror and tell us a story to validate the experience, particularly of the most marginalized or silenced. It, it puts it on a, on a, you know, a, a microphone yeah. for us yeah. to hear. And so there are many, I think I would imagine black women who, who would share the narrative that you just described. But one of the things that the research and data does is says like, okay, let let me show you that. It's not just not that one woman's opinion is not important. Mm-hmm. It is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let me show you these themes mm-hmm. that people feel in their lived reality. What's what is a, what's another example of um kind of a myth that's out there um that you that you feel like um most people are kind of operating in, but need to take a step back and, and realize that it's actually not what's happening.
3: Yeah, the black uh, that the black community hates black pastors. I mean, you know, I know what Black Twitter told us, uh, right. but you know, in legitimate data. And let me say this:
1: mm-hmm.
3: it's not just about being legitimate data, right? As opposed to like anecdotic anecdotal evidence, because we use both when translating data or when I'm creating resources. So I want to. Uh, say that, but you know there's there's a such thing as having someone who's a great survey designer, and I happen to be you know, like you have to know mm-hmm. people you have to you have to know the people you're trying to uh survey, you have to know um how they think, what they're most comfortable with, the kind of language that'll get you to the truth, a number of ways to ask the same question to get to a truth what institutions or organizations or people respondents will be most loyal to so that you ask the question right. Um, and then the kind of futuristic question that doesn't matter today, that's going to matter down the road. Like I don't even translate data anymore. I'm slow when I'm translating data. I'm not the best, you know, because it was not my first career in any way. And so my researchers, that's their jam. And I love them for it. <laughs> what I can do like really well is uh, survey design and data translation. like that. That's kind of where I rock real, real hard. And mm-hmm. I think that um, that helps us to get to truths that other people don't always care about or think are important. And That's why I think the latest work that we've done is so valuable because Mm -hmm. we could have asked questions, I'm sure, in a way that would have been really lazy and careless, that would not have gotten us to Mm -hmm. the truth. But Mm -hmm. we didn't, which is how we know, although Black Twitter tells us, you know, we're done, finished, finito, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's really not true. And um, Gen Z, Black uh, uh, young adults actually believe at a really high rate, I think for their age, you know that Black pastors are still the most influential, um, you know, uh, t- person in the community, and I think that's something that we myth, but that's a great uh, myth to bust, and mm-hmm. it actually helps us to work a little differently and think a little differently about the work that we do. And so, I'm really always excited to go in and share that data, because I think sometimes we feel so defeated, you know, like Black Twitter will eat us alive, you know, and and it's not that it's not valid, and that doesn't mean you get to go into the community like here I am world, no it means that people do see a space for you, that you don't have to argue that you're valuable, but you do have to come in with humility that says, I don't have to be the HNIC, you know I mean? and I don't have to, you know, be the only person with the microphone, and maybe I'll never get the microphone maybe I just use the influence I have in the community to get other people to see what else is happening in the community mm-hmm. so it doesn't give you a hall pass okay
1: yeah, but yeah, it yeah.
3: does indeed I hope give you the confidence that it takes to walk into your community and get to know them and believe you're valuable in the space
1: yeah I mean one of the things there um, just the construction that that culturally responsive con- construction of mm-hmm. the questions of the, the methodology is really what you're speaking to um, mm-hmm. and and you know, often we're not getting the information that we need because we lack the wisdom to yeah. even know how to ask the right question <laughs> to even one to earn the ability to even ask the question um, to ding, ding, be received. Ding, ding. I mean, that really, really matters. Um, and so, um, yeah, but but having having someone who ha- understands the the black church or, or it seeks to understand the black church continually uh, there to in humility offer the questions. Um, that, that that makes all the difference, right? Um, and then knowing, and knowing who kind of the, the communal gatekeepers are, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Those things are so necessary for researchers, like the cultural competency, <laughs> to use that language, of researchers is imperative or else we're not going to get the right questions and people aren't going to answer yeah. them, even if you can get to the people to begin with. And so researcher credibility is so yeah. so important, so important, and so, yeah. um, so, so, so here's the thing. I, I think that was so important what you just shared about the way that which the black community still sees the black preacher. Mm-hmm. And I've I've heard you talk about this before, but I would love for you to talk about it here as well. Okay, what, from what from what you're seeing in your work, what what are some of the things that people are looking for in their faith community? What what are you what are you seeing are like the 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 top priorities? You know, oftentimes people are drilling down on things. They can. This is this is what it is that the people want. Right. Um, you know, and that, that could be also a part of the myth busting, too. But wh- what would you say are some of the top things? You know, if, if a, uh, pastors or leadership team are listening to this right now and they're going to commit to a time of prayer and fasting and really drill down on some things, what, what would they be?
3: So I won't tell you number one, I won't tell you number five, but I will tell you what's in the middle, friendliness of the congregation. There you go. (laughs) You know, um, Mm -hmm. friendliness of the congregation is like so important. And I know Mm -hmm. we think we know this, but let me tell you why we don't, because we all have a sister so-and-so or some kind of usher um, who we say, well, that's just how she is. And mm-hmm. I want you to know leaving that person in ministry in that position in like they are, instead of trying to transform, change, love them into something better, is like putting a sniper in your congregation. That's right. You know, right. so you're literally like saying, Come on over here. Uh-uh, I see you. Oh no, come on in the door, come, come on, come on. And when they walk in the door, you're saying, hit it. And next thing you know, there's a red dot on their forehead and there's Ooh. a sniper who's taking them out. And I think mm. we don't think about um, friendliness wow. of the congregation and relationships and community in this way when it comes to the church. And, what we, and I think it's because we don't want to lose um, the mean usher either right? Mm
1: -hmm. And we don't think- You better talk about that usher ministry. That is incredibly important.
3: let me tell you something. (laughs) I started at a mega church at 25 and I was over the ushers. That was the worst thing Mm. I've ever done without giving me the support that would allow me to have the type of authority that I needed. And so, you know, I know all about ushers and I think I was a really good pastor to ushers. Like I went to usher school. I went to training. Mm. I put on my white suit, you know, and I yeah. would usher with them. And so I know, I think I know ushers a little differently. And I understand because, you know, I was at a church where if you put them in mm. overflow, they would cuss you out. Mm. Literally. Oh, Cliff, that's my hood. Let it be known. Let it be <laughs> that's where I was pastoring. And they would literally, because I didn't come here to be in no MF and overflow. So like, you know, wow. I didn't say you need ushers every now and then who like, let me tell you what you're not going to do. But... Mm. You also need to know when. And I think we don't want to lose the usher. We assume that those mean ushers, nobody else wants them anyway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Where else are they going to go? You know, they probably been like low-key put out some other churches or... They really do have a good heart at the core of who they are, or they make the best pound cake in the church, so you don't want to mm. lose. Them. Whatever the reason, which is, is a ministry. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> our, our, I mean, I have to tell the "Lady, make good money. Um. So you know, for whatever reason, we keep them around, and I get it, right? We don't want to give anybody up, but you can't let one person just come in and mm. take out every opportunity you have to build someone else up. So I think we need to really figure out what it means to, um, build. Our people up like, you know, and help them to transform. And you know, she'd been like that for 30 years. She ain't going to change. Well, shame on you for pastoring her for 30 years with no change. So either she don't listen to what you say or what you're saying ain't impactful over oh, 30 years. Yeah. Let me get my calculator. How many <laughs> sermons? You have? Um, 30 times 52, exactly. 1500 plus sermons and that many Wednesday nights and revivals. And they still the same.
1: And they're still the same. And they still the same. Well, and you know that so as when I hear when I hear that and I'm like, amen. Like I, I, I feel like that that data point like deeply. Because yeah. it, it's amazing how people will will stay in a place, even if they don't even fully agree with some of the doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there are a lot of people that are like, Yeah, my church does this, I don't really get it, yeah, whatever. Or, I don't like that they, that it's like this, but you know what? There's no doubt in my mind. That these people love me. I remember, I, I, you know, there's a story you don't I've never about multicultural
3: churches. That's where you are going? <laughs> oh no, actually, you know what I actually, actually wasn't. I know, but I'm saying they, they're so friendly. Yeah. Oh, they they can they you know I mean? can be. They, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, as long as you're not deep enough in.
1: Exactly you know what on I mean? the surface.
3: Yes, I mean they master that friendliness of the congregation at a surface Absolutely. level. Absolutely. And they keep people of color at a surface level.
1: Absolutely. Because if you get closer to the core, yeah. then you realize the dynamics of, of inequity and, and, all, and all of those and things.
3: That- you know, data says it's, you know, dangerous for people of color to be in multicultural churches. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. so, you know, Absolutely. that's the same kind of situation. It's like, well, yeah. I don't like when they talk about politics. I don't like when they talk about this. I don't like what they don't talk about, but they just, they love me. And, you know, they brought groceries when my mama died and da-da-da. And black churches, conversely, actually, I think, let you too qu- too far in too quickly. Mm. And they haven't cleaned up the kitchen that Sam Chan would talk about before they let you in it. And so, like, mm. uh, I hope... I mean, allegedly, how do I say this so they don't sue me? Allegedly, or in my (laughs) humble opinion, Cafe Du Monde in in, um, New Orleans is not my favorite um, beignet place Mm because it's nasty in the kitchen. And Mm -hmm. they let me see the kitchen from the moment I'm standing in line. I can see that filthy kitchen, which tells me I don't need to be here. So either Mm -hmm. you, well, you know, you need to both clean up the kitchen and... Until you've done that, don't allow it to be so visible while you're working to clean it up. Yeah. And I think that's what the black church doesn't do. They <laughs> let you in this kitchen real quick. It's filthy. It's not ready for, you know, your average, you know, person to walk into it, and they don't want to be in that kitchen.
1: So, so you all, you just made a whole lot of points, but the one that is that is knocking on my head hard okay. <laughs> is this. Is the superficial kindness of so, you know so-called multicultural churches, but also I would say there is a <clears throat> sometimes familiarity mm-hmm. can can breed a uh an unintentional disrespect
3: yeah, absolutely, and the black church is full of it it's surrogacy is what it is, what I often call it Surrogacy is something, surrogacy is something that you're rarely going to hear me talk about how to do ministry without.
2: Mm -hmm. including
3: it because it's really valuable. It's also very disturbing, you know, and it's very disrespectful and it's a major turnoff because only in the black church do you have that many aunts and grandmothers and mothers Mm -hmm. and older Mm -hmm. sisters and little Mm -hmm. sisters. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I tell this story all the time. I may have even told it to your audience how there was an older lady in the church who was a minister and I think, honestly, she's a little bitter because she didn't get to live out her ministry in the ways that she imagined. So she tries mm. to mentor all the women in the church, especially uh, ministers, to teach them how to act dress B. Well, um, mm. you know, she would tell me like she came up to me one time to help me because my cami and her, you know, estimation was too low. And she put her hand in my cami that was under my suit and pulled it up. And I said, well, usually men buy me dinner before they touch me like that, you know, just Mm -hmm. to piss her off. And because nobody gets to buy me dinner and touch me like that. (laughs) Um, But you have to remember back then I was probably like a size four. And if the Lord says the same, I hope to see that size again. (laughs) I was a size four and a triple D back then nothing I bought that was going to fit a size four was just going to, gravity was going to happen to whatever. You
1: know what I mean? Our, like, our bodies are our bodies. They're they not points
3: are. Of and, and I was <laughs> tired of, you know, always having to explain it or wearing minimizer <laughs> bras. And, you know, so oh I could get into my size four suit, you know, but in her mind, she was my elder and she had the right to, um you know correct me and when I said that to her she was like I'm just trying to help you you know to like pretty much to walk in holiness and I said well here's the thing I have the conviction of the Holy Ghost so when I walk out the house and I look in the mirror I can hear from God enough to know that what I'm doing is acceptable. Now, I'm not going to walk around in a sweatsuit. And if I did, I would be just as appealing in a hoodie as I am in this suit with this cami. I'm going mm-hmm. to suggest you keep your hands off of me. But most mm-hmm. black women, in, especially who grew up in a black church, are not going to talk to the elders like that. And I'm not saying I should have, but I was mm-hmm. sick of her. You know, it was too many years yeah, yeah, ago, yeah. I watched yeah. her beat women down and you know, just make them feel like nothing. And she would tell them to change their hair and don't do this. And, you know, nobody's going to want you with your hair like that. Nobody's going to let you preach if you look like this, you know? And I got tired of that kind of talk. So I just kind of gave her the business real quick. And (laughs) I didn't even want to, and I probably wouldn't even do it again, but it just shows you what that relationship, you know, that surrogate relationship in the church does. And honestly, I probably had looks, like people would text my work phone when I was in church Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. tell me like, I think that's short or, you know, that looks tight. And I just be like, first of yeah. all, who is this? Why are you talking to me anonymously? Who gave you my number? Why do you think on a Sunday morning this is acceptable? But it's that surrogate, you know, relationship that we have in the black church where we have seven, 70, 11, you know, mamas, aunties, <laughs> grandmas, little sisters, big sisters, you know, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. other stuff. And it's it's
1: tough. It it's, First of all, as you are sharing that story, I'm like, that is traumatic. Oh, it's yeah. Re- and disrespectful mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's just uh, th- that's the part I mean about the familiarity that can breed a level of comfort in which we can sometimes dilute the necessity of kindness yep. like if i'm if I'm coaching you know if i do I do premarital co- counseling sometimes, and one okay. of the things I remind people is that um and this may seem really simple, but I'm like, remember to be kind to your spouse. Because when we start to know people, yeah. And we're just like, I know you, I know who you are, it whatever, is. we we can actually start to take their very presence, their kind of intrinsic dignity for yeah. granted. And and the black church for me is, you know, I I describe it as like, you know. My great grandmother, my grandmama, my mama, I get offended. Like if you're talking about my mama, like yeah. that's how <laughs> like that's yeah. how I get upset yeah. about it. And and that but that still doesn't mean there isn't family dysfunction no. and there aren't and there aren't boundary issues. Cause kind of what you're describing is almost like it sounds like a family where there's boundary issues. Yeah. Like but yeah. there's that auntie that's like, that's an inappropriate question to ask me at Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Like that's out of pocket, right? Yeah. And and I think that even when you compare that, as we talked about, maybe the so-called multicultural church. Is that there's not that familiarity. So you have an over, it may be fake, but there is an over-cautiousness. Yes, it doesn't run deep that you figured it out quickly. Mm -hmm. But there is initially a kind of a presentation of kindness Mm -hmm. and boundaries, especially for people who are coming out what you just described. That may even feel re- refreshing to them. Mm-hmm. Of course, when they get close, they realize this can't this can't hold me up, right? And, and, well, and they're going to make me change. black
3: Person to get close, and they're like, "I always wanted to ask you about your hair because no. it's a black woman at my I mean, job."
1: And she boundaries, boundaries.
3: You know what
1: I mean? <laughs> <laughs> boundaries and again. The same
3: issues exist okay. in all yeah. churches. They may look different, but it's still a boundary issue.
1: Yeah, absolutely, you know? absolutely. So as you think about, so I hope and I pray that we are we're coming out of a pandemic now i, I don't know anyway we might I don't get, know, like friend. i know i know i know i know but look i i was out earlier today and i looked around i was like why don't these people have masks on? i got a super oh mask on and I, they did not have masks <laughs>
3: on. and i'm just disgusted by it if i'm honest like i just look and i'm like so y'all just over here chasing covid and huh? just trying to eat it up like yum 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 yum, yum. like yeah, you don't you know, want a
1: mask the American way is, you know, if, if folk get tired of something, they're like, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah.
3: I don't like it. It doesn't I exist anymore. Man. They're just trying to open up their mouths with no ma- mask on and take COVID in.
1: Exactly. So, but, but let's, let's dream and imagine a world. Okay. When <laughs> We, we, we it. made it all the way down to the Omega variant. And okay. okay. Well, I <laughs> don't know they way. went
3: to stealth. So that one was so bad. They abandoned oh, the Greek alphabet for it. I'm just saying. But.
1: I know. I know it's, it's bad. It's bad. It's, so, but, but I'm wondering, what lessons do you think we had an opportunity to learn in the height of the pandemic, and hopefully we passed at least the height of the pandemic, what are, what are some of the lessons that you're hoping as you, as you are coaching and guiding and ministering to leaders, what are some of the lessons that you're like, y'all, I hope y'all didn't miss this. I hope you did not miss this <laughs> because it was costly. What, what, what are you hoping that just a couple of those lessons that people walk away with?
3: One is that local actions impact the global church, you know, and we're clear because everybody can see our services. But it's always been true. You know, even when people couldn't see our services, if you were rude in the grocery store as somebody's pastor in Tennessee, then that pissed somebody off and told them they didn't have to go to church. And they heard about it in Minnesota. You know, that's always been true, that local actions impact global communities. So I want us to remember that. And it does ring true when people hear you talking crazy to your members, throwing things at your musicians. Um don't do that, y'all. Inappropriately <laughs> inappropriately uh explaining and describing COVID. Um deciding to do um demonstrations mm-hmm. from the Bible that are unnecessary, inaccurate and downright disgusting. I mean all those things. Impact. Come on now. The global community. So I don't want us to forget that. Mm. I also want us to remember that there are people all over the world who want and need what you have. And so you never take away the opportunity for them to access it. And so for the people who are thinking that they're going to do less hybrid work and more in-person at some point, I just challenge you to think about the person who is in another country, who is in another state, who needs what you have desperately. And then I want to remind us to try new things. Listen, you can always begin again. One thing I'll tell you in ministry that has made me the person I am today, my the pastor who licensed me was pretty rigid. Um, the mm-hmm. pastor who ordained me was pretty, you know, open. And so I could try anything twice. Mm -hmm. and to have the freedom to do that helped me to be the person I am today and so I encourage churches to be willing to try anything twice but not to um, replicate anything more than three times
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so
3: I don't don't want to go to the women's tea. They used to love it. Well, used to love it 23 years ago. It might be yeah. why they're not loving it today. So let's not keep you know making replicas of the same thing each year, each decade, each century. Uh, mm-hmm. Try something new so my clients know you don't have more than three times to say mm-hmm. something is a hit. Even if it's a hit all three times, the fourth time you got to change it. You have to do something. It doesn't mean completely change it, but you got to tweak it. You got to let something change mm-hmm. And so I hope that we hold on to those things where we, if we, not, if we aren't finding yet our new normal, um, at least while we're finding our next normal.
1: Hmm. So I did say I did imply that that was my last question, but I do have another one for you. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, and we have been asking this question in different ways throughout the entire series, and just okay. because we just want to show our cards. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I am a lover of the local church,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I've, I've just seen what God can do in a local community, mm-hmm. um, from the simple to the supernatural, <laughs> and, um, and I am committed. I'm committed to her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it it has, the local church has saved my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but I also know there are people who are heartbroken with legitimate beefs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) legitimate beefs about the, about the church, about Mm -hmm. spiritual abuse, just about not speaking up when we should have spoken up and not, not embracing when we excluded, just all kinds of reasons. Um, if you could speak to, if if you had an an open, an open ear and a willing heart, Mm -hmm. To the person who is exhausted by the church. Mm-hmm. And based on what you know about what the church can be and should be and, and the closeness to the possibility of it, what would you say to them?
3: Um, I would say to them, one, you can always begin again. Two, I used this clothes two days ago when I was preaching on a Sunday. So I'll give you the short version of it. James Harden was playing with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, they released him. He went to uh, the Houston Rockets um, when he was playing with the Thunder. He was the six man, youngest six man of the year when he was playing with the, with Houston. He became their franchise player. He didn't have to get any faster. He didn't have to get any stronger. He didn't have to get any bigger. All he had to do was go to the right place who could see him in the right way to put mm. him in the right position. And so I encourage you to keep trying. You may be the sixth man of the year somewhere else, and it seems like you're being celebrate, but you're celebrated, but you only come off the bench when it's time for you to make like a really strong move. There is some place that will value you as a fl- franchise player. So when things happen and you, know, you seem to be cut from someplace or released from someplace or just hurt so much that you have to walk away. I know mm-hmm. overnight you're hurting. I know overnight it feels like it's never going to get better, but I promise you when morning comes and you find a new place and a new team, you'll realize that you are good enough to be franchise player there, but yeah. you need to be in the right place that will value you in the right way to that would acknowledge all your gifts to to value you enough to find home and, um, some mm-hmm. beauty. And you can see he's made a couple of change, a couple of moves. So it doesn't always last forever, but That's there right. will be a place that can see you for who you are and put you where you need to be. So keep trying. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it feels good. It didn't feel good for James Harden when he was being Mm. transferred to a team and changing his position. It doesn't feel good overnight Mm. when you're trying to figure it out. But there will come a day when you'll just realize these are my people. This is my team. This is my position. You know, this is my role. This is my pay, you know, grade. This this Mm. right now, that's right. This is what I've been waiting (laughs) for. Uh, there is a place like that for you, so I encourage mm. you to be okay with trusting God's trade-in value.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we pray that God will continue to do what only God can do—to order our steps and mm-hmm. to take us to the places where full dignity is affirmed Absolutely. and where we can we can render the gifts that the Spirit has given to us and. Be poured into, because Lord knows we need it as tired people in a tired land. (laughs) So thank you so much, Reverend Bree. I so appreciate talking to you. And I know that folks are going to love this interview. Wow. Well, we learned so much. I want to take the time
0: to thank Dr. Corey Little Edwards and Reverend Dr. Brianna. Parker for taking a seat at the table with us this week. And of course, we want to thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about the state of the black church, uh, the data, or it could be about the data or where the numbers reside uh, using the hashtag Truce table. Black women, do y'all know that we have a black women's Facebook discipleship group? Well, we do. Make sure you follow Truth Table on Facebook, like our page, join our Facebook group today and invite your friends. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth Table and email us your thoughts at AskTruthTable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account so y'all can send your support and your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table is made possible in part by Podisteria Studios. Visit Podisteria.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and our video editor is Daryl Bradford, and we have been your hosts, Akemini and Christina. We'll see you soon on next Juice Table. Bye, y'all.